we're going through a sermon series this quarter about the book of Genesis. Our textbook will be, of course, the Bible and the book of Genesis. And uh, along with that, if you'd like to read uh, portions of Patriarchs and Prophets that correspond, that would be wonderful as well. Last Sabbath, and I've already listened to it, Dan Freen did a fantastic job holding down fort, teaching us about creation, and I appreciate that. And now we're going to be looking at a message today entitled The Eden Family, what God's ideal was for that uh, institution of marriage and the family in the Garden of Eden. But before we study God's Word, of course, we need to begin with prayer. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us life at all, for giving us safe traveling mercies here. And Lord, if there are any others on their way, please extend those mercies to them as well. And now as we open your word to understand what your ideal was for us in the beginning, help us to learn lessons that apply even now, that we reflect your character more perfectly. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are very few things in this world Today's a good reminder with our weather that are not exactly as God had originally intended them to be. In fact, there's very few things at all that remind us of Eden in this world, very few holdovers from that original ideal, but two institutions, two of God's gifts to man in Eden are still with us today, namely the seventh-day Sabbath and marriage in the family unit. These institutions were given for the health and growth of two different but critically important relationships. The Sabbath was designed to preserve and strengthen man's relationship with his creator. It was a day set aside for him and their communion together. Marriage and the family, on the other hand, were designed to preserve and strengthen human society. And it's fascinating that these two distinctions are actually embedded in the law of God. The first four commandments, the first table of the law, deal with the responsibility of the tended relationship between man and his creator, and it culminates with the Sabbath. And then the very fifth commandment talks about honor your father and your mother. It roots it in the home, and it opens up all of man's duties to his fellow man. So you have the relationship between God and man, and between man and man, the human family. And these two institutions that God established in creation were designed to protect and grow those two important aspects of human life, our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow man. Now, both of these two institutions need to be remembered and kept holy, for they were both made holy by God in the beginning, but it's ours to keep them holy, and both are the special targets of Satan's attacks in these last days. Anything that reminds humanity of their creator, of God's original plans, his ideals for them, Satan wants to make a special effort to tear down and distract from, discourage from, and uh, decimate at all lengths. So we want to give special attention to these two institutions. Now, I'm guessing that we hear more sermons on the first institution than we do on the second. We've heard plenty of them. In fact, I've given them about the Seventh-day Sabbath. And I know that you've listened in part because you're here. Clearly, we understand that this is the seventh day as the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, and we are here to fellowship together. And so while we could give an entire sermon on both of these two institutions, that would be monumentally long. And if one were to have been neglected, it is probably the latter, that second institution of marriage and the family. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. If you would, please go back to Genesis chapter 1. Our study begins in Genesis, 
And it's not just for this quarter, but all good Bible studies usually begin in the book of Genesis. That was Christ's method, looking at the entirety of Scripture, and especially the original ideals God had established so we can recalibrate our lives to his expectations. Genesis chapter 1, we read in verses 26 through 28 these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Clearly, one of the things that comes back in this dialogue that the Lord has with himself, which there's only so many beings in the universe can have a dialogue with himself, but of course we understand that there's a plurality to the Godhead. Individual members make up a singular God. Thus God can say, let us make man in our image. And so only an they and a them can reflect accurately an us and an our. So when God makes man, he does not make a rigid singularity of an individual. He makes a family. A man and a woman designed to reflect the character and the image of God. Now we continue on. Notice that, and I cannot highlight this enough, that in God's original intent, in his own discussion about the creation of mankind and in his execution of it, we see in verse 27, When God created man, it was not just simply Adam, and then later on, some other time, came along Eve. Which, by the way, she wasn't even called Eve until after the fall, so it was man and woman. But it was God's original ideal that man and woman would function together in unity. Male and female, he created them. Female was not an afterthought. This was part of God's original plans. Furthermore, it says that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea. And it goes on to list everything else. Was mankind the creator of heaven and earth? No. But he was supposed to be the curator of heaven and earth. When he has dominion, it's not though he had the rights to it by creation. He was given stewardship over this planet, and his responsibility was to caretake that which God had already made. So in this caretaking of the earth, God intended for man, both male and female, to have part in that work. Now, let's ask another question. When God governs his creation, does it just mean the physical world only, or does he also govern the affairs in the spiritual and moral realms as well? Of course, it's everything. Likewise, Adam, in connection with his helpmate wife, was supposed to care not only for the plants and animals, but also to tend and keep the world in its moral perfection. Let me explain. Well, Mrs. White helps us out. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 46, we read these words. Marriage was one of the first gifts of God to man, and it is one of the two institutions that after the fall, Adam brought with him beyond the gates of paradise. When the divine principles are recognized and obeyed in this relation, marriage is a blessing. Notice, it guards the purity and happiness of the race. Not just of the family, not just the individuals in that family, but apparently upon the institution of marriage, the 
entire race is supposed to be protected. It provides for man's social needs. It elevates the physical, the intellectual, and the moral nature. It's good for everyone. So again, marriage, while phenomenal for the man and the woman, actually covenanted together, is designed to have broader significance. Notice again, be fruitful and multiply. Marriage was designed to be the laboratory in which the next generation of healthy people were to be born and raised. Did you ever think about that? The Lord made the first two, and then he commanded them to make more. He didn't just make the whole earth already filled with people. He started them, gave them the principles, and then said, you procreate, and I want you to pass on, not just physically, but morally, this image of God. And it says to fill the earth and subdue it, and obviously fill it with what? Well, people, namely, we can't fill it with fish or birds. <laughs> All we have are people. And he says, fill it, but it also says, and subdue it. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this thought pass through your mind, and maybe I'm alone. I've gotten used to that. But somehow, well, he says, that, I've often wondered why the earth, which came from God's hand in Edenic perfection, would need to be subdued. Is he talking about keeping the weeds in check and keeping the wild animals at bay? No. And by the way, we have biblical evidence for that. For instance, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It's right there in your Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It specifically states that wild, harmful plants like thorns and thistles and the like were not part of God's original creation order. There were plants, but they weren't toxic. They weren't noxious. They weren't harmful. The earth worked with the man. So clearly, it's not just about that. By the way, go to Romans chapter 8. By the way, we'll have an extended study today. We're not going anywhere. What else you got to do? (laughs) Romans chapter 8. Nothing like studying the Bible on Sabbath, amen? We didn't come here to not learn. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 19. Notice this. Speaking of the planet itself, the physical earth. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who created it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So the earth will be made new, will it not? Right? But notice what it says. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. When it groans and labors, and and it talks about the earth wearing out like a garment in other places, is it because that's how it was originally designed to fall apart? No. It's a result of sin. It says here corruption did this. So the earth itself was not in decay and in decomposition and fracturing. It was a healthy planet. So man wasn't supposed to repair all the problems. There weren't problems. So what was he supposed to subdue? By the way, the Bible even goes on further in Genesis chapter 9 and specifically mentions that it wasn't until after the flood that animals feared man and fled from his presence. So you get the picture. The planet itself is physically healthy. The tectonic plates weren't rupturing. There weren't jagged mountains. There weren't big volcanoes. There weren't snowstorms, I mean. Okay? It was physically Edenic. It was ideal. 
The plants themselves didn't have thorns and thistles. There weren't toxins. There weren't poisons. It wasn't against you. The animals didn't run away, and they weren't predatory. They weren't. So what does it mean when it says, fill the earth and subdue it? Now, when it says, fill the earth, we know we're talking about people. So what needs to be subdued? I would venture to say that the people need to maintain that spiritual connection, that moral level. That's what needs to be subdued. For instance, when thinking about the world events just before the coming of Jesus, many of us likely imagine natural disasters such as earthquakes and hurricanes and the likes. And yes, those are signs of Christ's coming. But go again now to our scripture reading, 2 Timothy chapter 3. When the Apostle Paul looks towards signs of Christ's coming, he does not talk about the physical problems on the planet. He speaks specifically to the moral issues of those last days. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1. But know this. Well, that's an emphatic opening line, isn't it? If the Bible ever says to know this, what should we do? Know it. He says, be aware of this. Learn this lesson. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. Selfishness, right? Boasters, proud, blasphemers disobedient to parents. What's he referring to here? A breakdown of the family bond, the family unit. By the way, if they love themselves and are lovers of money and boasters and proud and blasphemers, where were they supposed to learn not to be boasters but to be humble? Where they were supposed to be thankful and loving instead of unthankful and unloving? Where were they supposed to learn that? In the home. But apparently they love themselves instead of loving others. They're disobedient to parents instead of obedient to parents. They're unloving, they're unthankful, they're unholy. And it goes on to list all these issues with society. The moral condition of the planet is what gave the Apostle Paul pause when he considered the end-time events. Now here's an interesting two sentences. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 421. Society is composed of families. Let's just think about that for a second. Society is composed of families. All that there is in the world are different family units. Everybody has parents. There's no one here who doesn't have them. Now, you might disassociate from them. You might disown them. You might disavow them. You might move away from them, and sometimes they come and chase you. But either way, everybody comes from a family unit of some sort. Society is nothing but a collection of families interacting with each other. Make sense? Okay. Society is composed of families, and the heads of families are responsible for the molding of society. Think about that. We think, oh, society did this, as though it's somehow separate from our interaction with society. What happens in the home doesn't necessarily... In fact, it just doesn't at all stay in the home. As we lament the condition of society of our world in general and our nation in particular, we must be mindful that a society's morality is nothing more than an aggregate of that of its constituent families. It's simply the sum of its parts. So one of the best things that we can do for society is start making a better one right in our own homes. If we have any hope of changing the world out there, 
We need to shore up the condition of the world in here. Again, the Adventist homepage 44. Those who are contemplating marriage should consider what will be the character and influence of the home they are founding. You know, you become a new person, you take on this personality, and then you will spend money, you will spend time, you will have jobs, you will have an influence in society. And the question should be asked, what will that influence be? Or have you put any thought about what your home life is going to do to the rest of the world around you? Again, those who are contemplating marriage should consider what will be the character and influence of the home they are founding. Upon the character of the home depends the condition of society. The weight of each family's influence will tell in the upward or the downward scale. We are all contributing to this society. And if we lament its condition, that's an opportunity for reflection. Lord, how can I contribute in a different way? Now, as we mentioned, the Seventh-day Sabbath and the marriage institution are being violently attacked by Satan in the times in which we're living. Some, and even within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, contend that the different roles or responsibilities of men and women in the home were not established by God until after the fall, namely that the headship of the man and the submission of the woman in marriage was not part of God's original Eden ideal, but only a consequence of sin. I believe at this moment it would be helpful to review the inspired record to refute this increasingly popular notion that the Lord intended, even before sin, for the family and the responsibilities of the members of the family to be a safeguard for society as a whole. Genesis chapter 1 again. You recall from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we've already read that, that we cannot make this too clear. Then the discussing the roles of men and women, and of course children that they would raise, in the home, it is critical, crucial to highlight that woman was not an afterthought. That the man and the woman were both created in the image of God and their unity is a reflection of the Godhead. Okay? Men and women, and here's our big word for the day, are ontologically equal. That means in their very essence, in their very nature, in their individual standing before God, there's not one that's more close to God and one is farther from God or more like God or less like God. Each one is equally human in their relation to God have a distinct relationship with God on their own. And God designed that both would be participants in the administration of the planet. Let them have dominion. So they both had parts to play in the administration of this world. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 46, we read this statement. Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor to be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. A part of man, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, she was his second self. What a great phrase. Showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that should exist in this relation. They were to be just as unified as the Godhead. They are to be a reflection of God on earth. Now, Genesis chapter 1 gives us the brief overview Genesis chapter 2 gives the details of how that creating process went forward. So let's turn our attention there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 
Did we know that from Genesis chapter 1, that the man was formed from the dust of the ground? No, it simply said, let us make man. didn't say how, right? Now we're getting more details into the process of how it worked. And so man became a living being. Now, look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Did God, though they were perfectly equal in their status as human beings, create man and woman in the exact same way at the exact same time for the exact same function? No. He created the man first and planted him in Eden. And he goes on in verse 15 to explain, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now, I thought that earlier in Genesis said that they would have dominion. Well, they will, but we're not there yet. This is now outlining the process of how we get there. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Question for you. Has the woman been created yet? in this story? No. Who does he give the instruction to? Him. Singular. How do we know this definitively? Well, we just keep reading as we resolve every other problem in the Bible. Verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be in condition alone. So what does that imply his current condition is? Alone. So he brings forth a man from the ground, puts him in the garden, and he commands him to tend and keep it, and gives him the instruction and warning about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the physical caretaking and the spiritual caretaking of the planet was entrusted to Adam before Eve was brought into existence. Then God comments, it is not good that man should be alone. Is his ideal will finished yet? No. It's the only thing you'll read in the creation story where God said it was not good. Every other day when everything was done, good, good, good. And by the end of this day, he'll even say that it's very good. But at this point in the day, it is not good because man is still alone. It hasn't been completed yet. So what does he do? You would expect him to say, oh, it's not good that man should be alone. Now I will create a helper for him. doesn't say that. What does he do first? Sets him to work. That's a good lesson for you. Men, you should have a job before you go get a wife. Yeah, you think I'm joking. (laughs) Build something. Be somebody. Notice verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So did the man and the woman name all the animals? No, the man did. That was his responsibility. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. What does it imply that he notices about all these animals? That they all have helpers comparable to them. And they're very different. They're not him. They don't compare to him, right? Rhinoceros, giraffe, lion, dolphin. It's great for them, but he notices, how come there's a them and there's only a me? Then we have in verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, which my parents like to bring out that 
Uh, anesthesia is the first career mentioned in the Bible. Anyway, I don't know if you can have a career of naming animals, but maybe that's one. But. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the, place in it, uh, the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Pause right here. If you've never read this story before, which I'm assuming you already have, but put yourself in the perspective of someone who's never been exposed to this before. What do you expect him to do with that woman when she's brought to him? Based on what you've read so far. Not sharing the work. What do you expect? The Lord God forms a creature and brings her to the man. For what purpose? To name her. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens next. And Adam said... By the way, who is Adam talking to? He's talking to God. We've kind of construed this to be this poetry that he recites to this woman. But he doesn't speak to her in first person. He refers to her in third person. And he said, this. Ah. By the way, that one last creature, when he wakes up, he's like, I've got one more for you. And I'm guessing he was like, oh, don't be a rhinoceros. Don't be a giraffe. And he says, here you go. He's like, oh. You know, this beam of light, this soft radiance or whatever. And he said, now this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That, that, makes, that matches me. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's better than me. That's much prettier. <laughs> she shall be called woman because she was what? Taken out of me. She's an extension of me, that second self. Aha. That's the completion of the image of God. There you go. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. There's that completion, that unity that God had established as his ideal in chapter 1. We see it come to fruition at the end of chapter 2. But in the interim, we see the establishment before the fall of roles for men and women. The man was supposed to be the leader and the woman was supposed to help as they, together, administered the planet. Now, as we continue, chapter 3, of course, just chapter 1 and 2 are the only place in the Bible outside of the book of Revelation when it's all reset again where everything was right. It goes downhill very quickly. We don't know how quickly that is. But the very next thing that the scripture records is the fall of humanity into sin. But let's turn to that experience now. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Oh, by the way, we always skip over verse 25. I think it's because it's awkward to say naked in church. But notice that it's after they are joined together in marriage that they become naked and they have no shame. Okay, just keep that in mind. It talks about that is an expectation of God. Anything outside of that is not God's ideal. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman... Now, does he speak to humanity in general? No. He specifically targets one of them. Which one of them? The woman. Why? Now, pause right here. Do not think because she's dumber than the man. She's not weaker than the man. She's different. 
It's not higher, it's not lower, it's not stronger, it's not weaker, it's not smarter, it's not dumber. It's just a different experience. There's an outlet here that's different. Let's explain. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, first of all, it's a twisting of what God had really said. God hadn't said you couldn't eat of any tree of the garden. He said you could eat of every tree of the garden except for this one, right? But how does she know what he really said? Was she there? How would she have gotten that message? For the man. And perhaps through angel messengers as well, but retaking just what the text tells us. It apparently was his responsibility to convey these warnings and to make sure that they were followed. To fill the earth and subdue it to keep it, to tend it, to care for it. Has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree? And the woman said to the serpent, we made of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Had God said, nor shall you touch it? He didn't say that. Which leaves her very open to him taking and touching, saying, well, that's interesting, I'm touching it. I'm not dying. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. What is the implication about the state of her eyes? They're closed. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. I would urge you to go home and read the account from Patriarchs and Prophets of this event. It literally talks about a, almost a a spiritual enlightenment, a a sensation swept over her. It was almost like a drug. It was just the rush of that forbidden, and she felt that she was entering into something greater. She felt and she doesn't fall dead. In fact, she has quite a bunch of life in her, and she runs over to Adam. And you should read about his struggle with this. He was not deceived. He just decided I'm going to disobey. But either way, that first pair were taken into sin. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to whom? Adam. Why? Because apparently he has a leadership responsibility. He's supposed to answer for this. It'd be very tempting. You you need to talk to her. But he calls to Adam. Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And you understand, they go on and on down this line. And he says, the woman that you put here, 
Now, was it the woman's fault? She had culpability in this. Was it God's fault for giving him to, her to him? No. He was so happy. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Woohoo! Until this happens. Now, why would he... Now, this is, I'll admit, just a bit of speculation. However, I feel it's reasonable. Why would he pick on Eve, or the woman, for his temptation and not Adam? I personally feel that Satan realized that his most effective approach to bring down humanity would be through the woman... Not because she was any less capable than Adam, but because Satan saw in her a potential frustration to which he could relate and by which she may fall. Let me explain. Like Eve on earth, Lucifer was the most beautiful created being in heaven. Like Eve too, Lucifer was highly exalted, but there were certain rights and responsibilities with which he had not been entrusted. Just as he had been jealous for a higher position than the one assigned to him, Eve could be similarly susceptible. We read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 58. Eve had been perfectly happy by her husband's side in her Eden home. But, and it's interesting she adds this line, like restless modern Eves, she was flattered with the hope of entering a sphere that that, uh, than a higher sphere than that which God had assigned her. In attempting to rise above her original position, she fell far below it. Now, people will say, no, 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 the position is humanity. She's trying to be like God. This is not a male-female thing. This is a human divine jump that she's trying to make. And there is an argument to be made for that. But as we continue reading, notice it this. Notice the language. A similar result will be reached by all who are willing to take up cheerfully their life duties in accordance with God's plan. In their efforts to reach positions for which he has not fitted them, many are leaving vacant the place where they might have been a blessing. In their desire for a higher sphere, many have sacrificed true, and it doesn't say human dignity, it says true womanly dignity and nobility of character, and have left undone the very work that heaven appointed them. Genesis chapter 3 continues. And the consequences for this rebellion are doled out. Please note also, we sometimes refer to the consequences as curses, but that's not the case. Only two things, if you'll notice very carefully in Genesis chapter 3, are cursed because of this sin. Number one is the serpent, and number two is the earth, both of which will be destroyed the earth, of course, being remade nude completely, right? But the earth and the serpent are going to be destroyed at the end of this thing. What's fascinating about this, the man and the woman, God's intent is for them to be redeemed at the end of this. So they have consequences, but not curses. All of God's discipline is intended to be redemptive, not punitive. You see the difference? His goal is to win them back to recalibrate them, to renew them into his image, and to redeem them in the end. So notice this. We'll start with verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Pause right there. Is the bringing forth of children 
now a consequence of the fall? No. Were they supposed to be fruitful and multiply before sin? Sure. So what's different? The pain of it. The process of it, right? That is intensified, but the whole thing isn't new. Let's be clear about that. Okay. Next, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Had she not desired him before? It's like, now I have to like him. No. And he shall rule over you. Is that a new concept? No. But it's an extension of things that already were in existence. It takes things that were already established and takes them to a deeper extreme. We'll come back to this in a minute. Let's go to verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Does that mean he shouldn't ever listen to the voice of his wife? Gentlemen, please, for the love of mercy, don't take that to what the text means. But no, 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 it's listening to her and obeying her instead of listening to the voice of Christ and obeying him. It says it right here in the text. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Was Adam supposed to work before the fall? Yes. Just the type and extent of the work is different now. Was he supposed to eat before the fall? Yes. But the type of food has changed, has it not? It's still vegetarian. Let's be clear about that. But instead of just eating the fruit with the trees, right, now he eats the herb of the field, which had been animal food. So his diet has been extended beyond what it originally was, specifically relating to the ground. It goes on to say in verse 18, Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And here's why. For out of it you were what? Taken. Have you noticed that all of the consequences for man relate to the ground? And he tells us why. For out of it you were what? taken. That's where you came from, and I'm going to tie you more intimately, more painfully to that thing that you are already part of, to remind you that you will not be God. You are a created being. By the way, the same thing happens with the woman. All of her consequences relate to the man. Why? For out of him you were taken. It ties more intensely to that from which you were taken as a reminder that you indeed are not God. And then we find in verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was a mother of all the living. Again, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 58. In the creation, God had made her, that is the woman, the equal of Adam. Had they remained obedient to God in harmony with his great law of love, they would have ever been in harmony with each other. By the way, is it possible that there could be a leadership that you don't ever have to flex because there's no disagreement? Wouldn't that be marvelous? If everything that you both thought was automatically already on the same page, <sighs> that would be nice. But apparently that's how it originally was. There was no need of subjection, like one has to win and the other has to lose. No, there was none of that. They would have ever been in harmony with each other, but sin had brought discord. And now their union could be maintained and harmony preserved only by submission on the part of one or the other. Had the principles joined in the law of God, even these consequences here, been cherished by the fallen race, this sentence 
though growing out of the results of sin, would have proved a blessing to them. But man's abuse of the supremacy thus given him has too often rendered the lot of woman very bitter and made her life a burden. Look at our world today. Look at the abuses by mankind and men specifically in relation to women and children. And no wonder the world balks at the idea of any leadership in the home. Because what they haven't seen is true leadership. What they've seen is abuse. And there's no way God could have intended that. And they're right, by the way. There's no way that God intended abuse to take place. Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul talks about how husbands are supposed to relate to their wives. What does he say? Starting in verse 22, both the wives and the husbands, it says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Then the very next thing he says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. That sounds so countercultural these days. But in God's ideal, men and women are supposed to be on the same page. They each have their own relationship with Christ, and they're both faithful to his word, and they both get along with each other as a reflection of the Godhead. Now, it says in verse 25, Husbands do what? Love your wives. To what extent? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. I think there would be far more acceptance of the roles in the family if husbands would love their wives and sacrifice themselves for her instead of trying to exploit her for himself. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she should be holy and without blemish. It goes on, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. It's important, I feel, to bring this passage out at this point. It's from Mind, Character, and Personality. It's a great book. Volume 1, page 160. I want to be clear that in the discussion of roles in the home, and even as they extend to the church, that God does not intend that men to run around Bible-thumping and text proof texting and say, I'm in charge here, I run this place. No, 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 no. Notice clearly what we read. It is no evidence of manliness in the husband for him to dwell constantly upon his position as the head of the family. It does not increase respect for him to hear him quoting Scripture to sustain his claims to authority. It will not make him more manly to require his wife, the mother of his children, to act upon his plans as if they were infallible. So though you have the position, you're not supposed to flex that, go around thumping people on the head for it, but you're supposed to lay yourself down and sacrifice the cause of the family. Thus we read in 1 Timothy. You have to do all of this preamble to get to the writings of the Apostle Paul on this issue. 1 Timothy chapter 2. says in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. 
The silence mentioned there is not speak is not to not say words like mute. It means peaceable. It means quietness. It means softness. Okay. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And he gives his rationale. For Adam was formed first. Notice he appeals not to the fall. His first appeal is to the creation order. Yeah? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. There's a picture of the family presented here that roots all the way back to Eden. And I'm going to close with this passage here. It's from Lift Him Up, page 339. On the importance of the role of family and the children that are produced and the mother's role. Would that every mother could realize how great are her duties and her responsibilities and how great will be the reward of faithfulness. The mother's daily influence upon her children is preparing them for everlasting life or eternal death. She exercises, notice this now, she exercises in her home a power more decisive than the minister in the desk or even the king upon his throne. The day of God will reveal how much the world owes to godly mothers for for men who have been unflinching advocates of truth and reform, men who have been bold to do and dare, who have stood unshaken amid trials and temptations, men who choose the high and holy interests of truth and the glory of God before worldly honor or life itself. When the judgment shall sit and the book shall be opened, when the well done of the great judge is pronounced and the crown of immortal glory is placed upon the brow of the victor, many will raise their crowns in sight of the assembled universe and pointing to their mother say, she made me all I am through the grace of God. Her instruction, her prayers have been blessed to my eternal salvation. I don't think that we have the first dawning inkling of how the husband, wife, and the obedient role of the children is supposed to be a safeguard to humanity. Spiritually, morally, in all aspects, the entire society is predicated on a healthy home life. And that's the number one thing that Satan is trying to break down. Through all kinds of things, through all kinds of infidelities, through all kinds of difficulties, through all kinds of temptation, through all kinds of distraction, through all kinds of disputations and fighting, through all kinds of everything, he'll take any avenue he can to keep men from being the men they're supposed to be, women from being the women they're supposed to be, and children from being the children they're supposed to be. But we must not allow that to happen. By the way, let me at this moment plug a special event that's happening. The, uh, we were up at workers' meetings this last week, and there were some individuals there from a group called Coming Out Ministries. And... Uh, as they were trying to travel away, the airplane wouldn't let them get on, wouldn't let them go. I'm sure the airplane itself was fine with it, but the pilot or the captain wouldn't let it. And so they got stuck here. And this afternoon at 2 p.m. at the Grand Haven Church, for anyone who's interested, a gentleman by the name of Wayne Blakely will be giving his personal testimony of how the Lord has called him out of the homosexual lifestyle and into fidelity to God's word. I would encourage you, If the roads are clear, and you can possibly make it, it would be a very inspiring, very insightful thing to attend. But I'm telling you, the Lord wants to redeem people from all aspects of this disintegration of the family. He wants to restore people individually 
and collectively as his people to more fully reflect the character of God in this world. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you set forth in your word the original Eden ideal. And Lord, each one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, forgive us of that. Open our eyes to new possibilities. Restore us into your image, whatever our shortcomings might have been in the past. Lord, from today and going forward, let us be new people in you. And Lord, in our individual lives and in our family lives, whatever that may constitute, Lord, let us play our part faithfully. Lord, we need a generation of men to be the men you've called them to be. We need a generation of women to be the women you've called them to be. And children to be the children you've called them to be. That in our homes may be seen a glimpse of heaven itself. Lord, bless us to that end and keep us faithful. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.